Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the University of Massachusetts Medical School's Office of Communications. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Med. Our guest today is Dr. Aaron Riemann Schneider, here to talk about one of the more prevalent health challenges for newborns straight through the elderly population. We're talking about hearing loss and deafness. He is an assistant professor of otolaryngology at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and leads the cochlear implant clinic at UMass Memorial Healthcare. Welcome. Thank you very much. First, let's set the stage. Uh, a statistic on the National Institute of Health's website surprised me. 30 million Americans deal with some kind of hearing loss, one in eight, so that might surprise a lot of people. Indeed, hearing loss is incredibly prevalent and the prevalence uh, increases as we age. So individuals over the age of 65 are very much affected by hearing loss. Actually 25 percent of people uh, of retirement age have uh, a debilitating hearing loss and that rate goes up to 50% by age 75. But that's not to say that it doesn't affect uh, young people too. Uh, there have every three uh, of every thousand births in the United States, uh, those individuals are affected by some degree of hearing loss. So it makes it a very common health problem even in infants. And is there any way to determine the cause? Is there a genetic link or anything that scientists have figured out? So for babies that are born with hearing loss today, we've got very good genetic tests that can frequently pinpoint the problem. Sometimes it's related to an infection very close to birth or right after birth, and sometimes it's related to a genetic uh, a type of hearing loss. And uh, our diagnostics are improving significantly to be able to identify what the problem is in many of those kids. In most individuals as we age, if we experience hearing loss, it's less related to an individual's genetics and maybe more related to environment. We know one of the biggest risk factors for hearing loss is noise. So if you work in a noisy environment, put on the headphones because uh, your, hear your ears are at risk. It feels like no matter what you do, whether the headphones are too loud or you're out in public or at a concert, you know, here, any general tips for people to protect their hearing? Sure, so if you're in an environment where uh, you're standing next to another individual as close as an arm's width and you have to shout in order to be able to be heard or the individual has to shout at you and they're only standing an arm length away, it's too noisy in that environment. And uh, surprisingly, if you put in earplugs in an environment like that, you can limit the amount of noise that's getting into your ear, but still be able to have conversation with the person that's next to you. Because you still have to raise your voice, but since you're closer, that signal is greater than the background noise. And so even with earplugs in place or with earmuffs on, you can still usually hear the people that you're with. So I'm curious about what the family of a child who is born deaf in 2018 can expect. Um, and so I guess if you could transport us back maybe 50 years and talk about what the standard of care might have been like then compared to today. Yeah. So we've come a long way in 50 years. Um, 50 years ago in the United States, in Europe, in any of the developed countries, a baby that was born deaf would usually not be diagnosed until they were expected to begin speaking. And in a lot of cases, those children didn't speak at all and they didn't have any language because they couldn't hear. 
So the first thing that changed really in the late 1980s and early 1990s was universal newborn hearing screening program. And what this did was diagnose any degree of hearing loss in newborns uh, before the baby left the newborn nursery. And what this did is give parents the information that there may be a hearing problem. And then that allowed us to follow up with those babies and make a definitive diagnosis of hearing loss. Um, hearing aid technology has improved a lot, so most types of hearing loss in newborns can be treated with a hearing aid. Um, but in 2018, we also know that there are many types of hearing losses that can't be treated with a hearing aid. The hearing loss is too severe, it's too profound uh, to be aided just with a hearing aid. And in those cases, uh, those children will go on to receive a cochlear implant. We do that procedure uh, typically between 9 and 12 months of age, um, and that really begins that patient's journey towards hearing rehabilitation. We expect that babies that are implanted around that time can go on to develop normal speech and language development with the right resources in their school and in their home environment. How have technological advances helped kids who are born with profound hearing loss? So the inner workings of the cochlear implant are quite sophisticated, as you can imagine. Um, the implant essentially has a microphone on the outside that picks up sound from the environment and then transmits it to an internal device that sits underneath the scalp. And there's a tiny electrode that directly stimulates the hearing nerve. And the way that that stimulation occurs is what allows the individual to hear. So there are a couple of things that have really advanced in the last 10 to 15 years. The first is that the way that the, those electrodes are designed has become much more complex and actually has allowed better stimulation of the hearing nerve. And secondarily, some of the ways in which we program the, those sound processors um, have also uh, improved. And so what we really hope for is for an individual with an implant to be able to understand speech. That's the most important thing. We want them to be able to interact with their family and friends. And so both the programming strategies and the electro designs have improved to be able to give better hearing to, to implanted patients. And so to clarify, those uh, electrodes are on top of the skull, but under the skin, the scalp. Yeah, so the, the device, the cochlear implant device is implanted at the time of surgery. It goes completely underneath the scalp skin. And after surgery, there's nothing that's coming through the skin. It's completely internal. There is a device that sits on the outside that looks a little bit like a hearing aid, and that's what talks to the internal device. So patients who have implants who don't have their external hearing aid device on um, would otherwise, uh, it would be hard to know that they had an implant. So we're sitting right now in the UMass Cochlear Implant Clinic. Tell us a little bit about what happens here every day and what sets it apart. So the UMass Cochlear Implant Program is one of the one of the oldest implant programs in the state and one of the largest in all of New England. And we've got a long history of helping people who have severe to profound hearing loss. And we do that with a broad and multidisciplinary team. I think bringing individuals in from audiology, psychology, social work, speech therapy, as well as ear, nose, and throat doctors is really critical to maximize the success Every patient that comes in is their own individual and has unique needs. 
and what our program does is focus on that individual every day and to try and make sure that we're selecting the right implant for them and that afterwards that they're getting the right resources and support they need in order to benefit with that implant. So we're recording this conversation uh, in late fall and later this year your clinic will be featured at the UMass Medicine Winter Ball which is the premier annual gala to support clinical care, research and education here. So what did it mean to you to have the Cochlear Implant Clinic be recognized in this way? I was incredibly excited but also incredibly proud of our team. I think that this recognition uh, really speaks to the hard work of all of the individuals that are part of this program and uh, the really superior patient outcomes that we've been able to obtain. Um, I'm very excited to be able to feature our program, talk about hearing loss, as we mentioned before. It's an incredibly prevalent problem. Uh, and there are many individuals who may be candidates for cochlear implants but don't know it. And so we really want to get the word out so that we can reach all individuals that may benefit from this technology and from the resources here at UMass. And what will that infusion of support uh, help? How will that help patients? Having some additional support for our program is incredibly vital to our ongoing success. Uh, we see patients from all backgrounds. Uh, we take care of all patients within central Massachusetts, western Massachusetts, southern New Hampshire, and even northern Connecticut. And many of these individuals travel for miles to come to visit with our audiologists, our surgeons, our speech therapists. Um, the burdens on these individuals are sometimes high. Uh, and despite the fact that the surgery may be covered by insurance, there are a number of additional uh, uh, device upgrades, additional um, requirements that patients really need to meet uh, that can sometimes be too much of a burden. And so any support that we can provide uh, for those patients to be able to maximize their benefits, I think would really be appreciated by them and help with our ongoing success. We also have an active research program here, and we really are looking to push the boundaries on how we assess outcomes in patients with cochlear implants and uh, to try and improve those outcomes for patients across the board. So our clinical research that's ongoing here through the medical school and the medical center uh, is a vital part of our ongoing success too. Anyone listening who'd like to learn more about the upcoming UMass Medicine Winter Ball can uh, do so by visiting umassmed.edu slash winterball. You're listening to Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of the University of Massachusetts Medical School. about your research. Uh, you have a lot of different kinds of research going on. What are some of the questions that you're trying to answer? Let's start first with the clinical questions you're trying to answer. Here at UMass we have uh, several open research studies that look at cochlear implant performance in patients who have received a number of different types of electrodes. These electrodes are sort of the, uh, the inner workings. Um, it's the uh, the most important part of the implant that sits next to the hearing nerve. And there are several different types that have been used in the past, but we still don't have a great understanding about which electrode would be best 
for which patient. And so our clinical research really centers on trying to understand how electrode design, how the placement at the time of surgery, uh, and how postoperative uh, outcomes all interface with one another. And if we can answer some of those important questions, I think that we can really better advise our patients in the future and hopefully improve their outcomes. How do you begin to get the information that you need to make those determinations? Our patients who have been implanted are seen on a routine basis here in clinic. And we're always trying to follow uh, their uh, hearing outcomes through a number of different tests. The tests can become increasingly complicated as their hearing increasingly improves. And so what we really want and our hope is that every patient can do superb on the most challenging test. Following patients for their progress over time is how we track whether or not we chose the right electrode at the beginning and whether or not their hearing rehabilitation is appropriate throughout that course. So I also want to ask about some of your more basic research because um, what are some of those scientific type questions that you're trying to find the answers to in your lab? So our lab really focuses on the mechanics of the human eardrum or the tympanic membrane. The tympanic membrane sits at the entrance to the auditory pathway and is very important for the way that sound waves are conducted and transmitted onto the inner ear. My lab looks at new types of materials that could be used to graft a damaged eardrum. One of the more common procedures that I do, aside from cochlear implants, is actually to reconstruct patients' eardrums after infections or trauma, like a Q-tip injury. Um, and we know that the outcomes after those procedures are good, but not great. And so my research focuses on how we can create a better scaffold to reconstruct the eardrum, um, and we use some novel techniques, including three-dimensional printing. I have to ask a follow-up about the Q-tip injury. That's real. That's probably more common than we would yes. surmise. Yes. <clears throat> here in the otology clinic and a hearing loss clinic, one of the more common things that I see is uh, patients who have uh, been using a Q-tip or maybe a bobby pin or some other instrument to scratch their ear canal or try and clean their ears and uh, have maybe gone too far. And that can result in a hole in the eardrum. So uh, what your mother told you is correct, nothing smaller than an elbow in your ear. Um, if you feel like you're having problems with your ear or your ear canal or itchiness, come see a doctor, come see an ear doctor, and we're happy to take a look. If there's too much wax, we can get it out. But um, you're always putting yourself at risk if you start putting things into the ear a little too far. So should people be using those? How, which, how should we clean our ears? So surprising to many is that the ear is a self-cleaning organ. So majority of people actually will not have rapid buildup of wax in their ear because uh, the ear wax actually will dry up and come out of the ear on its own. So a warm washcloth just on the outside of the ear is more than adequate to take care of most types of ear wax. In some patients who have a lot of impacted wax or have a particular debris within their ear canal, they may require some additional cleaning. Primary care doctors can do that on many on a frequent basis, or you're always welcome to come to our clinic and we can take a look too. You heard it here, folks. So what drew you to this specialty? So I was drawn into the field of otology and of uh, hearing loss because, for one, it's a very common problem. I think we all know somebody who's got hearing loss and we all know uh, how individuals with hearing loss can become socially isolated over time. It makes it hard to talk with your friends and family. 
makes it difficult to be able to go out in public and enjoy and do the things that uh, we all like to do. Um, giving individuals, giving our patients the ability to hear again is a very, very, um, it's a special thing. Um, and seeing a patient come in after they have undergone a procedure to improve their hearing, uh, and when they tell you they can hear their grandchildren for the first time, when they say that, uh, when mom states that uh, she knows that her daughter is turning to look at her when she speaks for the very first time, those are very special moments. And I think having the ability to positively impact people's quality of life is what really drew me in. I think a lot of people maybe take for granted, if, if, you're, if you don't know somebody who struggles with hearing loss, it can be easy to kind of forget how much it defines how you interact with the world. Yeah. Um, and it must be very, you must hear some really moving stories yeah. from your patients. Well, as humans, I think what separates us from, uh, you know, other animals is our ability to communicate in complex ways. And when an individual loses their hearing, they really have a very hard time communicating and in some, time, in some cases can even go on to become quite isolated. And so being able to give patients back that important trait, give, their hearing, give them their hearing back again, um, uh, or for the first time in the case of a young child who never heard, uh, that's, um, you know, it's, it's a real blessing to be able to do that. Let's look ahead 5, 10, 25 years. What do you think the standard of care will be like then? Is there, what's on the horizon that you think might help? Well, we do know that for patients with severe to profound hearing loss, cochlear implants work well, but they could be better. Um, one area that uh, is um, of particular research focus is helping patients with cochlear implants be able to hear and appreciate the richness of music for instance. Cochlear implants are really designed to help people understand speech, and they do a very good job at that. But if you think about listening to a symphony orchestra, there's a lot of very complex sound. And cochlear implants are just now becoming better at introducing that sound to patients who have been implanted. So I think that there are some really important uh, advances on the horizon insofar as cochlear implants are concerned. There are other important uh, uh, hearing rehabilitative strategies as well, which include medications that may help patients with hearing loss, or perhaps even gene therapy in genetic-related deafness. So uh, I think we need to stay tuned. There are some really important research labs, um, uh, many of which are here in Massachusetts working on this very issue. So I hope that we have some more good news soon. So this work must be very satisfying. Is there something you can point to that just makes you really proud when you walk out at the end of the day? Sure. I think I'm most proud when I see a little girl really living out the life of a normal child. Um, you know, to provide them with the opportunity to hear music, to hear their dance instructor, to hear their teacher at school, to hear their mother's own voice. Uh, really, that makes me incredibly proud to be part of this UMass team. And I think as director of our hearing implant program, I'm also incredibly proud of our multidisciplinary team. We remain highly committed to ensuring the best hearing outcomes for all of our patients. And this collaborative team-based approach is rather unique and I think something that we're all very proud of. Terrific. Dr. Aaron Riemenschneider, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. 
You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Aaron Riemann Schneider, MD, MPH. He's an assistant professor of otolaryngology at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and he leads the cochlear implant clinic at UMass Memorial Healthcare. You can learn more about the upcoming UMass Medicine Winter Ball, which will feature the cochlear implant clinic, by visiting umassmed.edu slash winterball. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the Office of Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Visit our website at umassmed.edu news, where you can find all of our podcasts. And follow us on Facebook at UMass Med, on LinkedIn, at University of Massachusetts Medical School and on Twitter at UMass Medical.